If you would, open your Bibles to John chapter 14. You know, after that children's sermon, I'm not sure what more needs to be said, so I appreciate that very much, but uh, Rebecca and I were talking at the back. We just need to pray that Gary doesn't get pulled over on the way home with two big giant bags of white powder in his car. Officer, it's diatomaceous earth. Yeah, right. I, I promise that it's diatomaceous earth. So I appreciate the, the, uh, the scripture reference particularly that we read and what the message of that was and also the allusions and then direct things that Gary was telling the children about the uniqueness of Christ. So, and also appreciate the fact that Bill mentioned to you, some of you may not have known that, that Rebecca and I are actually part of the missions budget here at Midway, and we just can't thank you enough. So what I would like to do before we start the message proper, Dean had invited me to share with you guys exactly what it is that we do on, in our ministry together. And so you can appreciate how much you're involved in that and making it possible. And so it's, it's not possible for me to tell you these few facts without it sounding like I'm talking about myself or I'm talking about my wife. I'm certainly doing that. But think of it in terms of the opportunities that God has given us to, to minister. And then even more so for these purposes here, think about it in terms of how God is using you to help us be able to afford to do some of the things that we do. So he mentioned that I am a professor of seminary. Uh, let's just awkwardly wait here. <laughs> do I need to do something, gang? Give me sprinkle some diatomaceous earth on my keyboard. <laughs> That's about as much as I know about ki- ki- uh, computers and stuff. All right, so I'm a professor of seminary. You might go, well, you said the seminary was in Charlotte, North Carolina. It is. We used to live in Charlotte, North Carolina, but all of my classes, even before COVID, went online. So I'm able to live, and we're able to live here, and I can still teach full-time there at the seminary. Uh, one of the things that's relevant to our ministry uh, under the auspices of the seminary is we have an annual apologetics conference. It's the longest-running and largest apologetics conference in the United States. And I invite you to go to the website and figure out opportunities uh, to attend and and, uh, take advantage of all. So it gives me an opportunity as a professor to do both plenary and breakout sessions, have debates and these kind of things, as well as opening doors with contact with other apologists around the world. You see here, for example, Lisa Childers and Jay Warner Wallace, who both have spoken at our conference. A friend of mine and one of our graduates from the seminary you may be familiar with is Frank Turek, who has a ministry called Cross-Examine, a tremendous apologetics ministry. And I have had the privilege, once a year, Frank conducts what he calls the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. And it's an opportunity for people who want to do apologetics to sort of improve their skills in public speaking and opportunities and such on social media. So the the, uh, Cross-Examined Instructor Academy this year is in Albuquerque. We'll both be there. Uh, Again, it's opportunities not only to do speaking, but engaging with students and and adults who come to CIA, and again, to foster these relationships with various apologists. Here you see Erin Kunkel and her husband, Brett. They do a podcast uh, together. She's also a podcast called Strong Woman, and then again, Elisa Childers. Once a year as well, I travel and we travel to Palmer, Alaska for an annual apologetics 
conference there at the Alaska Bible College. So it gives us opportunities to do uh, panel discussions, Q&A, plenary sessions, as well as uh, breakout sessions that we, that we do. It, this particular one was streamed over Facebook. There's a vista from standing inside one of the buildings on the college campus there. So Matthew Cote and his wife, uh, Chrissy, Matthew is actually one of our Ph.D. students. I'm actually directing his Ph.D. dissertation. He's a professor of philosophy and apologetics there. So these opportunities, not only the formal conference, but then just in your free time, go over to the, their house, have a meal, fellowship with students, and talk about the things of the Lord. We actually, this last trip that we were on, we're privileged uh, a gentleman who was a, a missionary in Madagascar who, re, who was a, a bush pilot, retired, has an aviation service there in Alaska. They took us up so we could see the glaciers from about 3,000 feet. At one point, the glacier was four miles wide. Another annual event that I get to participate in is the Defend Conference at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And again, it affords opportunities not only to do plenary sessions, but also breakout sessions. And then through the meals, it's a Monday through Friday event, have all this great opportunity to engage students and others uh, in, in issues of apologetics and such, which I'll say something about in the message proper. I'm also a member of the Evangelical Philosophical Society. So any industry has its own society that will meet maybe once a year of others in that industry for peer review, for uh, networking and things. So 1975, our co-founder, Norman Geisler, founded the Evangelical Philosophical Society as a, as a sister organization to the previously existing since the 1940s the Evangelical Theological Society. So whenever we get the chance, Rebecca and I travel to that. It's given me opportunities. Every time that I think I'm going to be able to go, I will submit a paper, and you read the paper in front of your colleagues, and then they critique you and that kind of stuff. So there I am given a paper. Uh, also afforded an opportunity to be involved in a panel debate over the, the contemporary kind of controversy surrounding the doctrine of divine simplicity. Some of you may know what that's all about. And, and, and also networking. So here's Elizabeth Urbanowitz, who was with uh, Foundation Worldview, and Krista Bontrager, Bontrager whose uh, theology mom is her uh, ministry, and then uh, Monique Dusan, who is a, a Center for Biblical Unity, and her area is in the woke battle. And, and uh, uh, Monique actually was one of the students at CIA some years before. So she's moved on now to have a great ministry on the Internet. Another uh, one-off, so there's a lot of things that happen that may just happen once or maybe just a few times over the years. We were invited to participate in some ministry in Hawaii. I know, it was tough. I mean, <laughs> but we, 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 you know, we were bearing our cross, as they say. So this particular ministry out of the uh, uh, Oahu, uh, kind of the Honolulu area, Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Pat is another graduate of Southern Evangelical Seminary. So I had the privilege of giving some uh, plenary talks as well as participate in a Q&A panel. Some of you may recognize Hugh Ross there on, on the far left. And one of the purposes of this particular event, of, it was on science and faith, was to try to model the best we could before the audience that young earth creationists, as I am, and old earth creationists, as Hugh Ross is, can rigorously disagree with one another but still love each other in Christ and try to have productive in intersection. But while we were in Hawaii, we were also able to visit 
and participate in ministry at Molokai Baptist Church. So Molokai is one of the other islands in Hawaii outside of Oahu, not very well known. There's Randy Louise Manley. Randy's another graduate of the seminary. I'm bragging on the seminary, uh, but he's another graduate of our seminary, got his doctorate from us, and he's been pastoring, I think, over 20 years. Is that right, Rebecca? So when we were there, Rebecca was able to give a presentation to the women uh, on Saturday morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, whatever it was, when having just got there like midnight the night before flying, and I got the opportunity to preach Sunday morning. Uh, so Rebecca was sharing about how God can even use our weaknesses and our sufferings uh, in, in, in their ministry. Again, remember the Polynesian culture, if you don't know, typically they regard people with handicaps or disabilities to be less than human or at least not as important socially. So they're generally marginalized in a lot of different ways. And that spills over into the church. And people feel like that I'm not really worthy to be part of a congregation because of my handicap. So she gave a testimony of how she was able to be used and is able to be used of God with her condition that she has that many of you are, are aware of. And, of course, I shared the same thing of, you know, what it's like to be bald. So uh, that, that, was, that, was, that was my cross to bear. Uh, another one-off, well, it's actually, this is an annual thing, First Baptist Church in North Augusta, South Carolina, which I wonder if, uh, if, uh, if uh, there's a First Baptist Church of South Augusta in North Carolina. That would be kind of cool if there was. But anyway, so what they have is, a, is an annual youth conference in apologetics. I don't participate, and we don't participate in the conference proper, but we're there running a booth for SES with other staff. And again, it gives us opportunity to build these networks with various apologists. <clears throat> Excuse me, you may recognize Greg Kokel. You may have recognized his picture from the CIA. He's one of the instructors there. And again, there's Elizabeth uh, Urbanowitz there. One ministry that Bill mentioned is a ministry called Ratio Christi. I could take the balance of our time this morning to talk about Ratio Christi. I won't except to say this, Ratio Christi is a campus apologetics alliance. For its first four years of existence, it was our missions department at the seminary, and it eventually grew to where it was self-sustaining. We cut the umbilical cord. It's now its own uh, ministry. It's in close to 200 campuses across the U.S. The, the brain and visionary behind Ratio Christi, our missions director, is from South Africa, and when he and his family moved back to South Africa, they, they took with them their knowledge of Ratio Christi, started it there, and I'll finish with some comments in a moment about what's going on there. But under the auspices of Ratio Christi, tons of opportunities come up to be on college campuses to talk with the clubs uh, and maybe participate in debates. I've done things like that at Georgia State, at University of Georgia, Kennesaw, for example, locally. But one that's been really exciting over the years, one of our graduates, uh, Ramon Margallo, who is a professor at, or rather leader of Ratio Christi there, there's Ramon, at the Philippines. So I'm able to Zoom with about 50 or 60 students at a time, various courses on apologetics and philosophy. But the thing that I think is most exciting for our purposes this morning, that you're most involved in in terms of how much you enable us to do this, when we do these things around, and people say, well, how do, you, uh, how do you fund that? Most of the time, the places that we go, with just a few exceptions, they do the best they can to make it possible. They'll pay our travel expenses. They may pay an honorarium on occasion. Sometimes we come out a little ahead. Sometimes we break even. Maybe a few times there might be a little shortfall. But there is one specific thing we do every year that we deliberately want to absorb as much of the cost as possible, and that's our trip to South Africa, because we don't want to be a financial burden on the saints down there. 
So you are helping us be able to afford plane trips from Atlanta to Johannesburg. It's basically four movies and an eight-hour sleep to get to, uh, to Johannesburg from Alaska. Now, South Africa is not just a reference to the geography of the continent, but it's actually a, a nation in the continent. There it is at the bottom. One of the things that's come up this year, because I'll tell you in a second why we go down there mainly, what we're doing. But because we were on our way, part of what worked out was a liberal arts college called Academia in Pretoria, South, um, uh, South Africa, has now started an annual theology and philosophy conference. So uh, the theologian there is a good friend of mine from South Africa, and he said, would you be willing to participate in that? And I said, uh, give me about 0.2 seconds to think about it. And I said, absolutely. So I have the privilege of now doing three presentations at the uh, Academia Conference. But here's what's exciting for us, and this is the symposium that Bill mentioned. So once a year, this, the whole country of South Africa has a symposium in Ratio Christi from all the campuses, and the students travel to some locale. So we're going to be there. Both Rebecca and I are, are speaking at the symposium. And I won't say anything too much about all of the speakers that will be there, just a couple of quick points. These five here are all either graduates of or current students at Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, these five are part of a group that we Zoom every Friday. We've been doing this for well over a year. Every Friday morning, their set Friday afternoon, we take about two hours, and we've read through several books together on philosophy and apologetics and discuss things. And so whoever can join us out of the group, they, they, they'll, they're not all uh, speaking at the conference. But of all of those, you may recognize these two as Beauty and the Beast, okay? So we're, we're going to be able to have a great time down there. So thank you so much for, for that. Let me just end this part with a short little video advertising this symposium to give you an idea of the, of the energy and enthusiasm that the saints in South Africa have for defending the historic Christian faith. So as I said, thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of that and helping us afford to do that. And I know the saints in South Africa appreciate the involvement that, that Midway has in the ministry down there. And they love Americans. They love uh, what we're able to contribute. And, uh, and it's just exciting to be a part of it. So you turned in your Bibles to John 14, verse 6, hitchhiking on the children's sermons that that. By this name, there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, some of you may not know that this presentation I'm doing was actually uh, in the director's cut of the Indiana Jones. No, that's not true. I just, I just made that up. I have too much time on my hands to Photoshop a picture of uh, Harrison Ford. Now, notice, though, the subtitle, which you don't see on the chalkboard that, you just, that I just showed. 
the challenges of religious pluralism. Aren't all religions saying the same thing at the core? It's a number of challenges that we deal with both in the world religions course that I teach as well as a whole course on just relativism, various kinds of relativism, one of them being religious relativism or sometimes called religious pluralism. Let me just tell you what the challenges are, and I'm only going to talk about one of those in response as as time allows. But here's one that we won't deal with, but you figure if every exit you take takes you to 285 North, I mean, could it be, some may say, that all religions are saying basically the same thing? You know, so they're all just kind of, doesn't matter which exit you take, that is, which religion you have, you're all go- we're all going to get there. Or maybe they say, perhaps they're not all saying the same thing, but maybe at the core. In other words, they may say different things on the peripheral, but perhaps at the core, what they're all trying to get to, maybe that's the same thing. Or, if that's not the case, is it possible that other religions are making claims that are incompatible with the claims of Christianity? Now, you might go, well, why is that a challenge? You'll see as we wrap up why I think that poses uh, a challenge in an encouraging kind of way. So when you look at the different world religions, these were all the ones that would fit on the signpost there. And there's a conspicuous absence here, of course. You see that the atheism is a totally different animal. So I'm not going to talk about atheism today, or today, right? So it's not on the post. That's a different subject. We're kind of talking about the way different religions are. And and so the challenge is, since there are so many different religions, how can the Christian maintain that only Christianity is true? And by the way, not only do we say this in reference to rural religions, but you could also say it in terms of what I think traditionally we would refer to as the cults. But the academic community and evangelicalism has substituted the phrase new religious movements because the media uses the word cult in a different way than the theologians. And we don't want to maybe think that if somebody's a Mormon, they're going to commit mass suicide the way some cults do, right? So they changed the term to be less offensive, Sarah. So you could see, uh, by the way, they've, they no longer call themselves Mormon. They have to go by their official name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But if this is the case that only Christianity is true, then are we saying that the followers of those false religions are eternally lost? Is that what we're saying as Christians? And if that's what we're saying... Well, what about those who sincerely follow one of these false religions and never had a chance to hear the gospel? How do we answer those? Those are the challenges that we deal with. Uh, there's there, there are just a few comments about uh, uh, religious pluralism. Sometimes you might hear the word relativism uh, with respect to that. Just so you'll know that I'm aware of, not all forms of relativism are, if you will, subjectivism, something true for one person, not true Not all of that is bad. Some of it is completely normal. Now, just think to yourself here. Think about asparagus and Brussels sprouts and think to yourself, tasty or not. Just think to yourself about that. Maybe some people think, I like asparagus, I don't like Brussels sprouts or vice versa, or maybe I don't like either one or maybe I like both. Now, I have my own opinion about it. But I don't want to impose my opinion on on you guys. I think everyone should be able to decide for themselves which one they like and which one they don't. So far be it for me to impose my point of view on that. Uh, Or if you don't like the uh, illustration that I'm about to employ here of vegetables, how about ice cream? Maybe it's even easier to see. Because the question to ask is, is religion a matter of personal taste? You want vanilla, chocolate, strawberry? Now, I'm type 2 diabetic. I take metformin twice a day, four pills a day to manage my diabetes. So when you think about choosing one's religion, you know, if people do choose a religion, 
ask yourself, well, is religion more like choosing a flavor of ice cream or more like in treating my diabetes, choosing between ice cream and my metformin? In other words, is there an objective fact about the matter, irrespective of where I grew up, irrespective of anything else, it's just true in and of itself that one religion is true and the others are false? Or is it just a matter of ice cream flavors or anything else? You just kind of pick your own and, and just go with it. Uh, that's where, by the way, I would submit the coexist sticker sort of arises. So the idea is, well, I, I know ostensibly the idea is, well, why can't we just all get along? By the way, there's really only one religion on there that has trouble getting along with everybody else. But I think even more than that sort of ostensive reason for the sticker it's trying to imply that really all religions are the same. It doesn't really matter which one is which as you, as you go. So uh, just be, be, get along and don't argue about it. But there's a certain insidiousness about, about that. Because you'll hear people say, it, uh, some critics will claim that if, if you'd been born in Tibet, for example, you'd be a Buddhist instead of a Christian. Think about that. You ever heard somebody say that? Well, you're, you're a Christian because you were born and raised in a Christian nation ostensibly, again, primarily historically. But if you'd been born in Tibet, you might be likely to be a Buddhist. Uh, all right, I won't quibble that. Let's just take that for the sake of argument. What if it was true that if you or I had been born in Tibet, we would be Buddhists? What if that was true? I would submit to you that has nothing to do with whether Buddhism is true or false or whether Christianity is true or false. It doesn't matter why someone may believe something. What matters is whether it is or isn't true. In fact, this commits what uh, logicians call the genetic fallacy. The genetic fallacy is suggesting that the origins of a belief is relevant to whether the belief is true or false. My wife grew up in Brazil as a child of missionaries, and I would submit to you that it's likely that many of the tribes in the Amazon jungle probably believe the earth stood still while the sun went across the sky. But developed nations understand, no, this, the earth is... Uh, orbit, I'm sorry, rotating on its axis, it's moving, and the sun is standing still with respect, right? So if somebody said, well, if you'd been born in an Amazon jungle, you'd believe the sun was moving. Okay, but that doesn't mean the sun is moving. It's a fact that the sun is standing still with respect to the earth. That's just a fact of the universe. Even if it's true that had I been born certain places, I might not believe that fact. So if somebody said, well, if you'd been born in Tibet, you'd be a Buddhist, I would go, that just means if I had been born in Tibet, I'd believe a false religion. And then they'd go, well, how do you know it's a false religion? i go, thank you. That should have been the first thing you asked me instead of this, this red herring and canard about, well, if I had been born somewhere, that's irrelevant. You should have immediately said, so what's your quarrel with Tibetan Buddhism or any other religion? How do you know? So let's go to the core. Let's just take a few minutes there. I want to try to show you that it's not the case that all religions are the same at, at the core. In fact, uh, this is very interesting. If you compare what core beliefs, that is defining doctrines of a given religion, whether it's Christianity, Hinduism, whatever, you compare those with, for the sake of our uh, terminology here, I call a peripheral belief, the beliefs that are on the edges there. If you go through the world's religions, and for that matter, many of the world's philosophies, you will find a very obvious unanimity of beliefs. And you look at that list, that all probably reminds you of the Ten Commandments. You will, a lot of people will be surprised how many of the world's religions 
teach that it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to steal, these kind of things. You should respect other people. Elders should be uh, nurturing children. Children should be deferential to their leaders, citizens to their government, government serving their uh, citizenry, those kind of things. And we even see it imbibed in the Declaration of Independence when it starts out at the first of the Declaration. It says, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to sever the political bonds which connect them to another and assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind required that you should give the causes which impel you to the separation. And that phrase, the laws of nature and nature's God, is this idea historically known as natural law. In other words, there are certain truths about morality specifically, but maybe even other truths, that people can just know just by virtue of being human beings. And so that's why you see such a unanimity in some areas, especially morality, around the world. And in, in the Western tradition, it's known as the natural law tradition. In fact, it's the very thing Paul uses in Romans 2 to prove to his readers that just because the Gentiles weren't there at Mount Sinai, they're not excused in the sin that they're doing because the works of the law are written on the heart. They are a law unto themselves, as they say. All right, so uh, it, it's natural law tradition. And by the way, uh, a great uh, resource I would commend to you is uh, uh, Jay Budashevsky in his book, Written on the Heart, The Case for Natural Law, or Norm Geisler and Frank Turek. Norm Geisler was our co-founder, Legislating Morality. So you see things like in Confucianism, when he says this, if I can get the slide here, hang on. What are the things that men consider right? Kindness on part of the father, filial duty on the son, uh, on the son gentleness on part of the elder brother, obedience on that of the younger, righteousness on part of the husband, submission on that of the wife, kindness on part of the elders, deference on that of the juniors, with benevolence on the part of the ruler and loyalty on that of the minister. These ten things are what men consider right. In Hinduism, uh, utter not a word by which anyone would be wounded. A sacrifice is obliterated by a lie and the merits of alms by the act of fraud. That almost sounds like a proverb doesn't it, uh, from Solomon. I love this one. One should never strike a woman, not even with a flower. I thought that was, uh, that was great. In Buddhism, you get the same thing. Supporting one's father and mother, cherishing wife and children, and peaceful occupation, these are the greatest blessings. So if you contrast, however, these different religions where they seem to be sort of the same in many respects peripherally, if you look at core beliefs, and I just picked a hand for you to point out, that I'll just run through really quickly to give you the, the impact of how radically different. Uh, you look at questions like, well, does God exist? If so, what is he like? Who is Jesus? Uh, is there life after death? How does one gain eternal life? Or how do you get from where you are to where you need to be? So I just want to show you just rapid fire in the time that I have left how different the major world religions are on every one of these questions, which I would again submit to you, these are really the defining doctrines. For example, let's take them one at a time when we look at Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucius, Judaism, and Christianity. Does God exist? There's not even a deity, and Theravada Buddhism is atheistic. It doesn't even have a God. How could you say we're saying the same thing if some religions don't even believe in the existence of God? You think it matters to Christians whether God exists or not? Uh, Hinduism, early Vedic Hinduism was almost monotheistic, like there's a single God. But later stages of Hinduism became pantheistic, meaning the universe is God, or then polytheistic, where you end up with 330 million gods in Bhakti Hinduism. There's no really 
interest in religion and deity and Confucianism. Judaism, there's only one. Islam, there's only one God. And Christianity is only one God. What is God like? Well, the gods of Tibetan Buddhism would sound more like what you and I would describe as angels and demons. You've got these finite spirit beings. Some are good and some are evil. Those are the deities of Tibetan. Early Vedic Hinduism, as I said, was almost a monotheism. Uh, He was the father of heaven. Upanishadic Hinduism, he's pantheistic. He's just the universe. Again, Bhakti Hinduism, all of these 330 million gods are all finite. There's no really anything to say about God in Confucius. In Judaism, their one true God created heavens and the earth, revealed himself to Moses and Abraham and Moses. Islam, the one true God created the heavens and the earth, revealed himself to many prophets, the last of whom was Muhammad. In Christianity, there's only one God. This God is a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's the one that I like. Who is Jesus? Just think to yourself, does it matter to the Christian who Jesus is? Just think. You think, I can't think of anything more critically central to my religion than who Jesus is. Do you realize there is no religion that I know of? I've been teaching world religions for decades at the seminary. There's no world religion that I'm aware of that says about Jesus what we say about Jesus. And so people come to me with this nonsense, oh, well, we're all basically saying the same thing, when they don't say anything close to what we say about the most important element of our religion, and that's who Jesus is. So Buddhists see Jesus as an enlightened one uh, of many in history. That's where the word Buddha comes from, enlightened one. Hinduism, in bhakti, he's just one of the 330 million gods you can hook your wagon to, and they'll take you where you need to go. But if it's sort of like the debate between an F-150 and a, and a Silverado. Hey, they're both pickup trucks. They both t- carry the load. You might like one over the other, but they both get you there. That's kind of what they think about uh, Jesus. Uh, given that there is no God, Jesus is nothing more than a man for Confucius. In Judaism, Jesus was a well-intentioned, if misguided and misunderstood, Jewish rabbi, but not the promised Messiah of Israel. In Islam, Jesus was one of the greatest prophets. Some people may find that surprising. Islam teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin and a miracle worker, but he is not the son of God in Islam. He did not die on the cross in Islam, and he did not rise from the dead. Of course, in Christianity, we understand Jesus as the unique son of God, God in the flesh, who died for the sins of the world. What about life after death? Theravada Buddhism seeks to lead one to nirvana, which is extinction of desire, just like a candle being blown out. (laughs) Just blow out, and you lose all desire, and therefore you're, you're not in suffering anymore. In Hinduism, the Hindu afterlife varies from either absorption, like a drop of water, back into the ocean, so you get absorbed back into God after you die, after you break the cycle of reincarnation, or uh, you get delivered to this garden of delights, which may sound like a heaven to some people, but you don't get there. Well, that's jumping ahead. Hang on. I won't say that here. Confucius' emphasis was on this life, an orderly this life and not an afterlife. Judaism, modern Judaism particularly focuses on the life that one's lived in the here and now and not too much of a focus on the afterlife. Um, in Islam, it's, it's uh, who receives... Hang on a second. My mouse was messing me up. It's who receives Allah's favor by the amount of work that you do and you, it's very rare to get assurance of eternal life in Islam. And of course, in Christianity, we understand that heaven awaits all who believe the gospel of Jesus and hell awaits all unbelievers. In fact, it's only because of that last one that the challenge even makes any sense to say, what about those who've never heard the gospel? 
you'd never find that challenge being posed against almost any other religion. But what about people who weren't around for Hinduism? Uh, so how does one get to where you are, from where you are to where you need to be, what we would call eternal life? Uh, it can vary in different ways. In, in uh, Siddhartha Gautama Buddha's original eightfold path, this very austere uh, lifestyle that you had to live. Uh, but in some Japanese Buddhism, you, you win the favor of uh, Amitabha or Amida Buddha. He's the fat one that you see in some of the Chinese restaurants, the little statue. Um, that's who, that's uh, uh, Amitabha Buddha. Uh, one must break the cycle of reincarnation in, in Hinduism and work off your, your karma. Reincarnation was a bad thing in, the, in Eastern thought because who wanted to be reincarnated in a life of drudgery in 6th century B.C.? In the U.S., it's been marketed as like, oh, you get to take the test over and over again until you pass. It's not that at all, and that's never what it was originally. There is no afterlife in Confucius. There's very little emphasis on it in Judaism. Heaven awaits uh, uh, those who have Allah's favor. But here's the key. In Christianity, it is a gift. I have never seen, I've seen it as a gift in some religions, like in Pure Land, Japanese Pure Land Buddhism. But it's never a gift predicated on a sacrifice for personal sin to satisfy the righteous requirements of a creator God. You don't see that anywhere. In fact, there are, cell, there are elements of Christianity where you don't see that, right? It's really the conservative evangelical. So when it comes to the coexist, if they want us to just all get along, fine. But if you're trying to imply somehow they're all basically saying the same thing, I prefer the, the, the sticker that Frank Turek publishes, Contradict, which I have this on the back of my car, and it's hilarious to sit at a red light with my sunglasses on so the people can't see that I'm watching them in my rearview mirror and watch them lean forward. They're trying to figure out (laughs) what that is on the back of it to say, yeah, no, these these things are not all true. So let me end with this. You know, we started out with with, uh, Jesus's teaching that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So what do we do with that? Well, I'll leave you with this kind of charge, if you will. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That hope that is within us is the resurrection from the dead and eternal life with God. That's That's the hope. That's the reason we have hope under persecution. And we can bear up under this life, the exigencies of this life, because we're clinging to that hope of the resurrection of the dead. So the Greek word there for defense is the Greek word apologia, where we get the English word apologetics. And Bill used that in his introduction. I've used it several times. Apologetics is just that area of study that focuses on how do we defend the truth of the Christian faith? How do we know truth is objective? How do we know that God exists? How do we know the Bible is God's word? How did it get down to us for 2,000 years? How do I know what I have is what they wrote? That kind of stuff. So that's what we want to do. And you do that in defending the faith, uh, the apologetics class at Southern Evangelical Seminary. So there's a shameless invitation. So there's nothing to say for us this morning about those, uh, or are we saying that they're lost? There you would study that in a class on homardiology and soteriology, that is sin and salvation. Uh, where you study what does the Bible teach about how we're saved and what is sin and how are we delivered from its consequences. And then what about those who've never had a chance? It's another presentation that I have opportunities to do. In fact, that's what I preached on the Sunday morning when we were in Molokai Baptist Church in Hawaii, uh, was what about those who've never heard the gospel? And, and I think there's a direct answer to that. 
Uh, it takes a presentation to work, work our way through it, but I'm, I'm lobbying for maybe another opportunity to stand in for Dean uh, uh, between now and then and such. So again, thank you for letting us be here. Uh, religious pluralism poses several interesting, important challenges. Most of the, uh, one of the most common is the claim that all religions are basically the same. Evidence shows, however, that's exactly the opposite. Almost all religions are same on peripheral. They're very radically different at the core. Uh, other challenges can be equally answered, and First Peter instructs us to defend the faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, when we're confronted with friends and family, chance encounters with strangers who do not believe, do not understand who you are, what you did for the world through your, your son, the Lord Jesus, uh, I find myself sometimes at a loss for a quick answer. But in every instance, we need wisdom and guidance uh, from your Holy Spirit to be ready whether that being ready is just a word of encouragement, a direction to a verse of scripture, or a complex philosophical argument. Whatever is called for and whatever measure of faith God has given us, whatever spheres of influence he's put us in, whatever gifts you've given us and talents in all different kinds of areas, I just pray that when it's all said and done, we be found faithful uh, of defending uh, the, the, the faith, as First Peter 3.15, and defend that claim by the Lord Jesus that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through you. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.